Praise the Lord. We'll be transitioning now to the preaching of God's word now. Let's pray one more time specifically for this time that God would speak to us personally, powerfully, and prophetically. Let's pray. Almighty Father, may your words dwell in us richly, that I may faithfully teach and admonish your church in all wisdom, so that the peace of Christ would rule in our hearts, and so that whatever we do in word or deed, we would do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. In his name, I ask this. Amen. All right. Today's sermon is from Ezra chapters three and four and is titled Starting the Temple. We started our new sermon series in Ezra and Nehemiah called Rebuild last week. The sermon this week is exciting because we get to see how the people of Judah, upon return, returning from exile, resumed their worship of the Lord in the temple. The people of God were created and called to worship the Lord. It was a foundational identity that they had as God's people. So not only was the temple rebuilt, but more importantly, God had to rebuild his people as true worshipers. After generations of corrupting their worship of God, and then decades of not being able to worship God because the temple was destroyed and they were in captivity in another land. This past week, I listened to the sports podcast that had, that had this basketball player as a guest. This player was known, is known for his high-flying and powerful dunks, but in recent years has had injuries that have seriously hindered his game. He shared how the hardest thing for him to do in his career as a professional basketball player was to change his shot. For most of his life, he shot one way. But in order for him to pivot as a basketball player, he needed to get better at shooting from three-point range. He needed to add more dimensions to his game rather than just sticking to dunking the basketball. So he hired a new coach who had him start from zero, and he had to relearn how to shoot the basketball. He changed his form, his delivery, and his mindset. In some ways, isn't shooting a basketball the most basic thing that a professional basketball player is supposed to know how to do? Yet for this professional basketball player, he needed to relearn this basic activity in order to reinvent himself as a basketball player. In the same way, our most basic activity as a human being is to worship God. This is what God created us to do. But we also need to relearn or maybe learn for the very first time what worship is. Just like the people of Judah who are starting to rebuild the temple, this is the one thing for us from Ezra chapter 3 and 4. Trust that Christ, our King, faithfully rebuilds us as true worshipers. There are three stages that the people of Judah experienced in being rebuilt by the Lord as true worshipers. First, worship rekindled. Second, worship remembered. And third, worship restricted. So these will be the three parts of my sermon today. I'll also include three truths about worship for us that are also essential for rebuilding us as true worshipers. So we'll start by seeing worship rekindled. Here's the first tr truth about worship that I will highlight from this part. Worship is significant because it reinforces all the teaching, narratives, and symbols of our faith. In Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we see that the people of Judah got started almost right away by rebuilding the altar and observing the Feast of Booths, all still without a temple building yet. Let's focus our, our attention by reading Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, 
the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. They arose, then arose Jeshua, son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it was written, as it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. Amen. So the people of Judah did their first pilgrimage to Jerusalem within that first year of their return from exile. It was the seventh month of that same year. Think about this. Everything about their lives was still new. This was a new generation of Jews. There were still a small number of people who knew what life in Judah was like before the exile, but they were all very old by this time. And then they all stepped into a situation that was very bleak. Roads and buildings were in ruins. Fields and vineyards were overgrown. But as we see in verse 1, there was a spirit of unity. It says the spirit, the people gathered as one man to Israel. This was none other than Yahweh doing something special in their hearts. They were rebuilding their worship of the Lord. So led by Jeshua, the leader of the priests, and Zerubbabel, the governor of the province, the first thing they did was to build the altar that would be the heart of the temple. It was built so that they could offer, they could start offering the various sacrifices that were prescribed by the law. Their motivation for doing this is revealed in verse 3. It was because they were fearful. Remember, they were able to return to the, to the land but the people still had not yet secured the land from the other people groups inhabiting it. There, there were inevitable land disputes with those who moved in to occupy the land while the Jews were in exile those last 70 years. And so they wanted to make sacrifices because they needed protection from Yahweh. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? In their fearful and uncertain situations, the people of God worshipped. You know, there are a lot of reasons why people seek God. Sometimes the motives can be questionable, like because a guy wants that girl to like him or because someone wants to make business connections. Sometimes the motives are just simply because there's a big need that they have and they're looking for divine help or divine direction. Regardless, God can use these reasons to draw people to himself and rekindle worship in their hearts. In verses one through four, it says that the people of Judah made an altar, made the proper daily sacrifices, and then observed the, the, the Feast of Booths for the first time. So what is significant about the Feast of Booths? This was one of three festivals that Jews were supposed to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem for every year to offer sacrifices at the temple. It was celebrated with a holy assembly on the 15th day of the seventh month, followed with seven days of feasts when they were to offer a lot of various sacrifices. The Feast of Booths observed Israel's journey in the wilderness when they left Egypt and were on their way to the promised land, and they lived in booths. They lived in tents. The significance of the Jews celebrating the Feast of Booths 
for the first time since returning to their homeland was that it was to observe Yahweh's protection in the past and spark new faith in Yahweh's protection in the present moment. The custom was that pilgrims set up these booths or tents to live in during the, the festival, which symbolized the tents that the people of Israel lived in throughout their journey to the promised land. This was worship rekindled after 70 years of not doing it. And this brings us to the first truth about worship again from this part. Worship is significant because it reinforces all the teaching, narratives, and symbols of our faith. I read something really interesting about all these sacrifices and festivals from James Hamilton, who wrote a commentary on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. He wrote that these were worldview builders for Israel. You see, a worldview is like a pair of glasses through which we see the world. Everyone has a worldview, whether they realize it or not. And our, our worldview is our way of making sense of the world and making sense of our lives. Our worldviews are made up of four aspects. First, teaching, which is what we're instructed. Second, narrative, which is the story we believe about the world. Third, it's symbols, which are the memorials that celebrate the truths of our teaching. And fourth, liturgy, which is the use of our teaching, narrative, and symbols in worship. So for the people of Judah here, they were doing something special. For them, their teaching was the law, the law of Moses, what they were taught about God and about God's covenant relationship with them. Their narrative was that they were on a journey towards the fulfillment of God's promises to them, that he would provide for them and bring them to the promised land. Their liturgy was the observing of the feast of something like the Feast of Booths. And their symbols were those sacrifices that they offered on the altar they just built and the things that they were doing in the festival of booths, like sleeping in tents. And so in this sense, the way they worshiped reflected a worldview of faith in their covenant relationship with Yahweh in the present moment. You see, worship isn't a, a meaningless ritual. It's an important aspect of shaping our worldview as Christians, too. When we gather together for worship, we have a liturgy as well. We read the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, preach the Bible, and see the Bible in activities like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Through these aspects of worship based in the Bible, we learn teaching about who God is. That's the main idea. That's the most important thing. And also, to a lesser degree, who we are. We also can know that the story of the Bible is a narrative. It's a narrative of how God planned to save people through Jesus Christ, and that his redeemed people are also on a journey, and their end destination is the new heavens and the new earth. We have symbols of what we believe in as well. Baptism shows shows us what entrance into God's family looks like. The Lord's Supper shows us the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that fuels our present and future faith. You see, worship is significant because it reinforces all the teaching, narratives, and symbols of our faith. 
Therefore, the obvious connection to us is that we understand that our worship services are a key part of our worldview building. Let's be committed to participating regularly and intentionally because in it, we internalize the teaching of who God is and the narrative of where our lives are going. We will know how to truly and accurately make sense of the world that we're living in now. In order to trust that Christ our King faithfully rebuilds us as true worshipers, we first saw worship rekindled. Now we'll move on with seeing worship remembered. Here's the second truth about worship that I'll, I'll highlight from this part. The shortcomings in our worship remind us that the ultimate worship is yet to come when Christ returns. In Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13 now, we see that the people of Judah then continued the work in rebuilding the temple by starting with foundations to be laid down. Verses 8 and 9 say how some time had passed after they first built the altar and observed the Feast of Booths. It was now sometime in the second month of the second year of the people's return to Judah. Let's read together verses 10 through 13 now. This is God's word, Ezra 3, 10 through 13. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the, sh from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Amen. When the builders had finally finished the foundation of the temple, which was no small task, mind you, there was a pause in the work as they praised and gave thanks to Yahweh. Once again, they worshiped. This was a significant milestone. And so they sang David's song of thanks that's recorded in 1 Chronicles 16. And that was when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to Jerusalem and placed in a tent. This was before the original temple was, was ever built. David their greatest king of old had given specific directions and arranged music for the Levites and priests to play. Now, this new generation of returned exiles were singing to the Lord, a momentous occasion for this new generation of Jews because the new foundation of the temple was laid down. They sang of Yahweh's goodness and steadfast love. There's that key word in the Hebrew, hesed. This was a special word because it means covenant love, loyalty, grace, mercy, and kindness. And so they sang of Yahweh's covenant love, loyalty, grace, mercy, and kindness, teaching this truth into their souls and to each other's souls and to even the people groups that were around them. But look at verses 12 and 13 now. 
In the midst of these great shouts of joy, there was also a loud voice of weeping among the old generation. Those who were old enough to remember the glory and the splendor of the original temple. They wept with sadness because of the tragedy that was the destruction of the original temple and because of the certainty that the rebuilt temple would never match the glory of the temple that Solomon made with all of his wealth and resources. They wept with sadness because of their great sin and rebellion against Yahweh and his covenant with them, which brought them to this point of a temple that would never be as great as the original. So imagine this scene, great worship of the Lord among the newer generation already happening as the temple foundations were laid. And at the same time, great sadness among the older generation happening as they remembered the great tragedy of their past. And this is an informative and realistic picture of what life is like for worshipers of God. Worship of the Lord overflows Hesed towards his people. But at the same time, among people who still live in sin and who still live in a world with a lot of pain, suffering, and disappointment. And this brings us to the second truth about worship from this part. The shortcomings in our world remind us that the ultimate worship is yet to come when Christ returns. It's also important and good for us to embrace both feelings that are depicted in this scene. They both exist in our worship. First of all, it's good to weep and process through tragedies and grief that we've, that we've experienced. This is especially relevant for us with everything that has gone on in the last year and a half. For those of us who have lost loved ones during this season, it's really, really important to find the space to do this. It's really important to talk about it, to talk it out with other family members and friends. It's really important to pour out your heart, all the struggles, regrets, and emotions you're feeling to the Lord. It doesn't magically just happen or instantaneously go away. But as you weep and process, it also opens the door for the Lord to give you comfort and peace in the midst of it. Also, we need not forget the mistakes and sins in our past. We can still grieve over the broken relationships and the wounds inflicted on others. We can carry the lessons learned and the scars that we carry that remind us to be humble and sober-minded about ourselves. Just as an example, in a big situation that my wife and I went through, and one of, our, one of two very big conflicts that we've had in our 15 years of marriage, I realized this through the counselor that we were meeting with. The mistakes of my own insecurity, avoidance of responsibility, self-centered inability to empathize and cowardly failure to protect my wife caused deep pain for her. And so I grieved over this. I asked for forgiveness. We all have those mistakes and sins in our past, don't we? Don't try to bury them or pretend that they don't exist. This isn't true worship anyways. Have you ever watched those worship fail compilation videos on YouTube? Uh, if you haven't, after service today, just search the phrase worship fails 
and you'll see a ton of them. Please don't do it now, though, okay? They're painfully awkward situations when something ridiculous happens in a worship service. And just to be clear, this scene in Ezra 3 doesn't depict a worship fail at all. It presents the reality of worship in this world. You see, our worship on earth will always fall short or fall flat in some way or another. It is reality that we will always have both feelings at the same time that are depicted in this scene. Elation and joy in the presence of God and tears and pain at the brokenness of our lives on earth. You know, sometimes we feel guilty when we come to a worship service um, and um, when we're unable to worship. We totally fake it until we make it and we try to try to make it look like everything's okay. We feel terrible maybe because of the sins that we've been committing all week in our mind. Uh, we feel burdened because of the heavy, heavy situations that we're facing, financial woes, family worries, sickness and death, work issues, and on and on. And on top of that, we think that this isn't how it's supposed to be when I worship. I should be able to forget about those things and mindlessly sing songs and listen to, a, listen to the sermon. What I want to say to you is actually it's the exact opposite. We come before the Lord, the God of the universe, with all those things, with all that baggage. We come before the Lord, the God of the universe, with those things, and also with hearts of faith that he is good and his steadfast love does endure forever. You see, in light of Christ, we can see the full extent of God's hesed towards us, his covenant love, loyalty, grace, mercy, and kindness. He is good. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, like the ones that were offered on the, that brand new altar by this new generation of Jews, all point forward to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us, the Feast of Booths that this generation of Jews made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to observe for the very first time after 70-some-odd years, and that was forsaken by their wicked, rebellious ancestors, points to the journey that we are on towards the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, in light of the truth of this teaching and this narrative, we can have hope in our worship. Our worship fuels faith in the worship that is to come. That's described in Revelation 7. I want to read Revelation 7, verses 15 through 17. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. They, he will lead them to springs of, of life-giving water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Therefore, church, we can trust in the present moment that the Lord Jesus Christ saves and sustains us until this final hope is realized. Church, the only true worship fail is, what, is when we try to hide our sins, when we try to hide our failures or try to ignore our burdens and pains when we worship. Not only do these things give us hope, but they most importantly remind us 
that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And when Jesus does take me home finally, it will be the ultimate worship experience. In order to trust that Christ our King faithfully rebuilds us as true worshipers, we first saw worship rekindled and then worship remembered. And finally, we'll end with seeing worship restricted. And here's the third truth about worship that I'm going to highlight from this part. Jesus Christ is the unstoppable king whom God raised up to make worship in spirit and truth possible for us all. In Ezra 4, we see that the people of Judah faced many formative adversaries who were, who were against this rebuilding project. In verses 1 through 3, it says that the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin got news of what the Jews were doing in rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And so they approached the leaders and asked if they could join them in this rebuilding project. They said, let us, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now that sounds nice, doesn't it? So their neighbors wanted to help the people of Judah rebuild the temple, right? Well, that's not exactly the case. Just to explain the situation, the policies of the Babylonians and Persians when they conquered a place was that they would repopulate that area with other conquered people groups. And so the land of Judah was now filled with all these other people groups that worshipped their own gods. They were polytheistic. So that means that they were okay with worshiping whatever gods as long as it suited them. In, in verse 3, Zerubbabel and Jeshua responded this way. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. This sounds harsh, but it was not without good reason. What was important was that the true covenant community of Israel was devoted to Yahweh as the one true God that they would worship exclusively. They had a law to live by as part of their covenant with Yahweh, which included having no other gods besides him. Individuals from neighboring people groups could, be, could become part of the covenant community, but it meant forsaking their gods and worshiping Yahweh only. In fact, Israel's problem throughout their history was that they assimilated too much with their neighbors, adopting their idolatry, adopting their immorality. So what they were doing was they were protecting their very identities as people of this covenant with Yahweh. Friends, before I mentioned that God can work through people's wrong motives or self-seeking motives to draw people to himself and to rekindle worship in their hearts. But as well, it's clear that there are moments in our journeys when we have to make the choice to forsake all other false gods in our lives and devote ourselves exclusively to the Lord Jesus. It's not being perfect. God's hesed towards us isn't towards perfect people, but people who receive the gift of Christ on the Christ on the cross by faith. So to add to the type of types of worship fails out there, another one is when we do not have single-hearted devotion to God. True worship is saying, I will have no other gods before you. 
Now I acknowledge that I fail in this. And so I depend wholly on your covenant love, loyalty, grace, mercy, and kindness towards me. And once again, I forsake those other things and I choose you. The intentions of the Jews' adversaries becomes clear in what happened next. Verses 4 and 5 describe how these adversaries would spend the next few decades trying to stop the people of Judah from rebuilding the temple. It records how they discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, and frustrated their, frustrated their works by bribing others who were supposed to be helping them so that the work of the Jews was sabotaged. Now, let me explain what was written next in verses 6 through 23, because it flashes forward, actually, to the time of Ezra, the author of this book, almost 60 years later. As an example of all the discouragements, the fears, and the sabotage they faced, Ezra pointed to his current situation. The adversaries of Judah went as far as to write a formal letter to the current king of Persia. At that time, it was Artaxerxes. It stated that if the people of Judah were able to rebuild the temple and the city, they would pose a very serious threat. They would resist paying their taxes and might even become emboldened to rebel and to try to establish their own kingdom. And so Artaxerxes issued a proclamation in verses 19, 19 through 21, and I want to read this. This is God's word from Ezra chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. I made a decree. And a search has been made, and it has been found that the city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. They make it, therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me." This is so important. Think about this with me. Artaxerxes, during Ezra's time, said that the rebuilding of the temple and the city was to cease and desist. He wanted to eliminate every possibility of a rebellion from happening. He acknowledged that there used to be a great and there used to be great and mighty kings ruling in Jerusalem, and he wanted to prevent, do his very best to prevent the uprising of another great and mighty king from the people of Israel to reign there. From this point in verse 24, the historical narrative returns to the time of Zerubbabel and, and Jeshua. And it says that the, house of, the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Just like the work would be stopped again and again in Ezra's time, it was first stopped back then for about 15 years, so that there would be no king of Judah that arose. There would be no king, no possibility of a king that would arise. The worship of Yahweh at the temple would be stopped temporarily, but there would be a greater king that would come, the greatest king that would come. This brings us to the third truth about worship again from this part. Jesus Christ is the unstoppable king whom God raised up to make worship in spirit and truth possible for all of us. The narrative of God's plan of salvation cannot be stopped. Yes, 
the second temple would be a built that that would be built would fall fall far short compared to the glory of the first temple that Solomon built. Yes, the temple, uh, the building of that second temple was threatened and even stopped many times those days after the exile. Although worship was rekindled in the building of the altar and the observance of festivals like the Feast of Booths, those were not the end goal in the narrative. Although worship was remembered, which brought great rejoicing and also great pains, it was supposed to point God's people to something greater to hope for. Although worship was restricted or even stopped by adversaries of God's people, God's plan for the world to worship him in spirit and in truth was unstoppable. The mighty, eternal king, Jesus Christ, already has come today into the world. He has defeated our greatest enemies. He defeated our sin by dying on the cross and bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. He defeated death and the devil by rising from the dead three days later, giving us new life in him. In John chapter 4, Jesus told the woman at the well that he is that source of living water that would give life to anyone who believes in him. And that through him, people could worship in spirit and truth. They could worship the God of the universe in spirit and truth. This is what he said in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There are true worship fails. And then there is worship in spirit and truth, being honest and humble before the Lord Jesus, having hearts of faith in light of Christ, that he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. It's a single-minded devotion to the Lord Jesus alone. Now in the New Testament, the temple is no longer a physical place of worship, but described in two ways. First, in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 6, 18, Christians themselves are the temple of God, where the Holy Spirit dwells and creates this personal, intimate relationship with God. We can worship at any time, any place, and in any situation. For example, these days, what I've been doing is just pausing throughout the day. Sometimes I pause for one minute in the middle of a task. Sometimes I pause for 10 minutes, maybe doing something like making breakfast or in the, in, in the middle of meetings. Or sometimes I pause for even longer, for like 30 or 40 minutes while I do something like ride my bike, ride my bicycle and expend some energy, but also be in God's presence. Second, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, the church, the body of Christians together, is a temple. They're God's household, God's family. So we worship together, learning the manifold wisdom of God more and more when we read the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, preach the Bible, and see the Bible together in our corporate worship gatherings. We covenant together 
to do this because we know it's easy to find excuses not to do this. Our Sunday celebrations and life groups are our lifelines in many ways to keep our worship of Christ fresh and burning hotly and brightly. We remind each other that King Jesus has come and reigns, that he will return someday as the King of kings and the Lord of lords in final victory. So church, in order to trust that Christ our King faithfully rebuilds us as true worshipers, we first saw worship rekindled, then worship remembered, and finally worship restricted. Let's conclude by thinking about our life application. Here are the next steps we can take to put into practice our trust that Christ our King faithfully rebuilds us as true worshipers. First, identify the worship fails that trip you up feeling overwhelmed with guilt, trying to fake it, or having other gods in your heart. Remember, the only true worship fail that we can experience is when we try to hide our sins and failures or try to ignore our burdens and pains when we worship. In the present moment, we can also trust that the Lord Jesus Christ saves us and sustains us until this final hope is realized. We recognize that he is the only one worthy of our worship. So we make it a habit of coming clean and repenting about the other gods that arise within us. Second, identify the ways to be intentional in worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and truth personally and in the, in the church body. How can you implement personal worship of the Lord Jesus Christ anytime, any place, and in any situation? Think about ways to pause throughout the day in different amounts of time to be, in, to be in God's presence through his word, prayer, and singing praises. Also, understand what we do in our worship, in our corporate worship, teaching, narrative, symbols, and liturgy, and engage with God intentionally by preparing our hearts, by having an open spirit, by setting aside that time and space every week for life group and Sunday service and engage with the church family as well by sharing your burdens, ministering to each other, and formally serving in various aspects. Let's trust that Christ, our King, faithfully rebuilds us as true worshipers and let's take those steps of obedience. Let's take a few moments to collect our thoughts and to pray on our own at this time before we uh, have a time to go into breakout rooms. Let's go ahead and pray.